At the end of your life, what will be your legacy? What will you leave behind for future generations? For the world, join the world messenger, Isabella Lundberg, each week as she brings you a new distinguished guest from the business, sports, or entertainment world to share their success, their struggles, and their lessons. They will share their insights into current hot topics that affect everyone. Isabella facilitates an intimate, vulnerable environment to find the true value of humanity and real leadership. Are you ready for your legacy? The legacy that matters? Are you ready to hear from one of the luckiest guys alive? One of the luckiest guys in the world and his absolutely insane story. Hello, my beautiful friends. It's Isabella Bakir, the world messenger, and I'm inviting you for another epic episode of Legacy Leader Show. And today, guests will totally blow your mind. Buckle up, champions, because we are taking off. Imagine having a dialogue here right now and hearing firsthand from two-time Olympic champion who has competed in two Winter Olympics, former ski jumper, someone who broke the fear way before I'm assuming most of us ever could possibly imagine and believe and continue to do the same. Today, he is lucky because he received two, he's recipient of two organs that kept him obviously alive and preserved his quality of life. And so much more in between in this story. So I cannot wait to introduce you to today's guest, Raymond Randy Vador. uh, Randy, Raymond, (laughs) welcome. Thank you very much. Good to be back with you. Thank you so much for joining us here on the Legacy Leader Show. I'm just really, really excited, Randy, to have you here with us because your story is sprinkled with so much miracle and what a best time to share the story is during this amazing holiday season. So before we go into the second part that I just mentioned, let's go back into the first. Everybody's dream when they're kids, when they're young, it's to be either athlete and of course to be Olympian. So you fulfill those two major dreams the most children dream of. How did you do it and how did you even start competing and getting into ski jumping? I was very fortunate to have grown up in Steamboat Springs, Colorado, uh, which has the moniker Ski Town USA. Um, Had some very understanding parents uh, when I first said that uh, I wanted to try that that thing over there on Howlson Hill where the ski jumps were. Um, my older brother, my older brother, and I went over there and uh, and had the time of our lives. Uh, I believe we were five and seven, six and eight. Yeah, uh, he's a couple years older than I am, and just absolutely loved it. And um, I think my parents had hoped that I would grow out of it or move on to something before I got to the uh, the really big ski jumps. But uh, they didn't know that the really big ski jumps were actually my goal. Um, So just kept after it. Um, All of my friends were doing it. Um, It it was just the best way to grow up. And with a little bit of of luck and some hard work, I was uh, fortunate enough to, you know, make it to the to the top level of the sport. Uh, and first of all, for everybody that's not familiar with Steamboat Spring, Colorado, it's absolutely an amazing way in nature, environment, snow conditions, all of that to grow up and to experiment with. But what's so beautiful is also that you started so early and being so fearless, because when we look at about uh, the height, the speed and performance that it's required, uh, I feel like looks amazing on the screen but when you really stare at a jumping area it's really scary how did you dealt with any of the fear that you may have um in order to do that uh, a little bit of fear in sport i think is healthy um i think when people become fearless um dangerous things happen so it, it's it's like any sport that requires, you know, uh, a level of high performance 
activity and reactivity. It, it's a skill that you develop over time. Um, you don't just start out on on the big jumps. They they start you small. You get used to the speed. You you build muscle memory and reaction and you know very. It's a very specific sport. Um, it it requires you know, power, speed, reaction. Um, you really have to be in tune with what your body is doing. I mean, if you're going to launch yourself at at 55 or 60 miles an hour into the open air with with you know two and a half, three meter long skis attached to your feet, yeah. You need to be in tune with your body or bad things happen. Um, and you just start small and you work your way up and, and with coaching and, and development of skill, you, you can move up uh, to the bigger jumps. And, you know, it's, it's like anything in life. I think uh, bigger, better, faster is, uh, is more fun. And uh, it's, it's an absolutely incredible experience to to fly through the air and it 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 becomes almost addictive you you think about it you dream about it you you work at it um it's it's just i've done lots of crazy things in my life driven race cars jumped out of airplanes you know cliff diving all all kinds of crazy things but but ski jumping the the feeling the silence of it um, I, I haven't found its match yet. Mm. Thank you for describing that because that was really what I wanted to know what goes in your mind when you were preparing, when you slide, and then when you launch in the air. Of course, you want to get as high and as long as you can. Uh, and those moments for us, the watching kind of go very fast, but then it's like disgrace and just the finesse, how is all that done? Uh, I'm just curious, um, as you mentioned, that it's nothing that you already tried competes or compares to that. Um, what usually happens in mental toughness or mental strength that, that really helps you to stay grounded in the air? <laughs> You know, there's there's a fair amount of of repetitive training that goes on. You know, um, you know, for me and I think for most athletes, the the goal is to train your body and train your mind so that in the moment, it's as automatic as it can be. Um, you know, as I said before, the the silence of it is mm. is probably the most shocking thing when I tell people because you're you're on snow or ice, you're traveling at a high rate of speed. You know, if anybody's rolled the window down in their car and and stuck their hand out at highway speed, you you know what that feels like, and you feel the pressure. And when you move your hand up and down, you know whether you want it to or not, it it goes a certain direction. So muscle memory and and you know just being in a frame of mind where it becomes automatic is is the goal um that's not to say that when things go wrong you just you know let it happen you, you have to react to that if the wind is bad or you make a mistake you know uh again you know if you're rolling your hand up and down like this out the out the car window and you you tip your hand over a little too much you know it it snaps back you know, yes. that can happen to your body when you're flying through the air. So yeah, it, it's, it's, it's peaceful. You know, you may be in a stadium, you know, sitting on top of a ramp that's a couple hundred meters above everybody else. And there might be, you know, in the case of the Olympic games, you know, 50,000 plus people, you know, live watching that. And you have to make it a a peaceful thing you have to be calm you have to be ready um it only lasts you know eight nine seconds from start to finish um but but you you try to train your brain and and your body to to do what it is you've you've want to do for for those eight or nine seconds oh wow that's amazing um so 
for those eight and nine seconds that made history, right? To be so sometimes the millisecond the difference when you're competing with that place you and qualifies you for all these amazing tournaments, but ultimately to the the, the most pivotal ones, which is Olympic Games. So do you mind sharing how was the feeling when you knew that you got qualified for Olympics and you're going to be competing in the Winter Olympics in 1994? So I qualified during a World Cup tournament that was in Italy. It was just before Christmas. It was actually in, in December of 93. Uh, the competition was at night. It was under the lights. It was in a high mountain town. It it felt home to me because that's how Steamboat is. And we jumped a lot as kids under the lights. And I'd always enjoyed the, the facilities there in, uh, in Prodazzo. And I, I qualified. And uh, it, it was exciting and it relieved so much stress for me to be able to pick up the phone and with the time change both of my parents were still at work in steamboat my father was a, a middle school science teacher and my mom worked for the county in the department of social services and i've never been so happy to pay for an international phone call in my life uh, <laughs> I, I called my father and asked the secretary at the school to pull him out of class which i knew would scare him because you know, when your son calls from Europe and, and asks for you to be pulled out of class, most people think, oh, no, you know, something went wrong. You know, is he hurt? And uh, I got to tell him that, uh, you know, they needed to uh, to get some plane tickets and, and pack their bags because we were we the family were all going to Norway. I was 16 at the time. So, you know, I was missing high school and my life was kind of crazy and just to put the stress of am I going to make the team behind me was was really really good for me I was able to then start to prepare um, same thing with my mom I called her at work again you know mothers being concerned about their sons all the time oh my god are you okay and I said yeah mom things are great you know same same thing you know get a plane ticket pack your bags we're all going um my older brother happened to be living abroad at the time. He was doing a year abroad in Japan. And I didn't have his number, but my parents were able to call him. And so we kind of had a, uh, a mini family reunion in February um, at the Olympic Games. And uh, it was just, it was incredible. The other you know cool thing is having grown up in Steamboat, where we produce a lot of Olympians, some of my friends, you know, one of my friends specifically, a kid named Todd Lodwick, uh, also in high school with me, he was doing very well on the, the Nordic combined side. So I got to go to the Olympic Games with my friends, uh, my childhood friends. And uh, I, I, I don't think I was prepared for the emotion that came when you walk into that opening ceremonies which happened to be in in the ski jumping stadium which made it even even cooler for me um and i'm walking in with my friends and you know we're, we're on the world stage we've achieved something we've we've tried for uh dreams we had as children todd and i worked out together we trained together we fought together um we, we had heated battles over the the next six years um but to go to go with your family, to go with your friends, it, it just it's incredible. Thank you for describing that because it's it's just uh, so great to hear the story behind it, right? Because a lot of times we see these amazing athletes competing, but sacrifice and also the the joy and and ups and downs and roller coaster ride that you guys are on um, very rarely gets shared. And it's just so wonderful, as you said, to have all those athletes with you, your friends that that practice that you grew up with you get a chance to uh, share the stage or, or compete in different sports and, and just have fun. 
Um, and then obviously that led you also to the 1998 Winter Olympics Games. And I'm curious, when you look back on that, obviously that going for a second time and just uh, feeling uh, that you were so good uh, that you, again, could be there. What did you learn? How was that pivotal um, shift in your life after, after you stopped, obviously, competing? So I did retire after the 98 season, a um, little bit of an unexpected decision for me even. Um, and uh, I, I had to, I had to change my environment completely. Uh, I spent that summer working. We built a house in Steamboat for my mom. I put all my money in the bank and another friend of mine came to me and said, Hey, um, my girlfriend's doing a semester abroad in Australia. My little brother's down there too. Um, I'm going to go. You want to come? And I thought, you know what? The best thing for me when the snow starts to fall is to not be here because I knew I would be pulled back. I knew I would want to, to start ski jumping again. Mm. And I took that opportunity and I went to Australia for four months in what was our fall of 98 and, and the spring down there. And I kind of saw that as the, the pivot point in my life where I was done being an athlete and I didn't really know what I was going to do next. Um, but I saw that as the way to transition, um, change my environment completely and, and kind of reset. Um, so that's what I did. And then I ended up, uh, meeting my first wife and falling in love and moving to Denver. And, and we have our son together who has turned into the most amazing human being. Uh, I, I, I'm more proud of, of my son and, and the man he's become and the things he's doing, um, than anything else. I, th I think most parents would say that, um, you know, your, your child, you know, though not perfect is, is your legacy, uh, for most people. And, uh, turns out my son has moved to Australia, um, in his early twenties, much, much like his father tried to do. And, uh, you know, just absolutely wonderful kid. Um, you know, he's, he's an athlete. Um, he just, he has a love for life and adventure and uh you know as a parent you you just you want to see that you want to see your child you know grow and excel and pursue their dreams and you know my dreams required me to travel and and my son's dream has required him to to travel and move and um you know i miss him but but i'm i'm extremely excited and, and a little bit jealous of him <laughs> he gets to do all the fun stuff now when we need to kind of be more adulting, right? And do other things yes. and change our priorities. But that's fantastic also to see uh, how you influence him and having a father, Olympian, and being also uh, into athletics, into um, sports, how that shapes and also brings future generations to think about sports and also learn from, which is amazing. But then yeah, I think I think sport and travel, you know, be it together or separate, I, I think they really shape people. Um, yeah. And I, I think you learn so much from traveling and you learn so much by participating, you know, in a sport or being a ballet dancer or, or wishing to excel in music, something to, to give you drive. Um and, and, you know, if my son wanted to be a pianist or, or a ballet dancer, I would have supported him wholeheartedly in the same. I just, I, I wanted him to grow and, and experience life. Mm, that's amazing. And it's such a beautiful gift because a lot of times parents have a different expectations uh, most of the time when what they want kids to have stability or to go a certain path that that is the norm or society di dictating and when you go and trailblaze like yourself in a less traveled uh, journeys with very different mindset it's amazing how much of amazing things can happen as well with that in mind obviously a lot of things shifted later on in your life and today 
when we look back and one pivotal moment in your life um, from an athlete who was healthy and had a great lifestyle, things shifted in a split of second for you. Do you mind sharing what happened and how do you end up to be in a situation where you really have to re completely rethink your life? Uh, yeah, the day was March 31st, uh, 2006. And I had been told that uh, I had uh, a rare disease called HSP vasculitis. And uh, I was actually initially diagnosed by my dermatologist. And uh, April 2nd, which was a, a Saturday, 2016, I was in the emergency room and uh, I found out that uh, that I had HSP for sure. And that was a tough battle. Um, basically, I had to have my immune system completely wiped out with steroids and then slowly rebuild itself over about a 10 month period. And during all of that, one of the things I was told was, you know, one of the long term effects of this disease is it is it can harm your kidneys. And, you know, I, I changed my lifestyle, um, changed my diet, started, you know, taking better care of myself and, uh, you know, really trying to, to, to stave off any long-term effects. And you know, I thought I was fine for years, you know, I was working every day, you know, no problem. And then I started, you know, in 2020, late 2020, I started, you know, having swelling in my legs and headaches and, you know, just generally wasn't feeling good. And it was the middle of COVID. Didn't want to go to a doctor. Definitely didn't want to go to a hospital. I chalked it up to, you know, 40 something now, you know, it, it's, I'm just getting old and slow. Well, eventually I went and saw my doctor and uh, the blood test revealed that uh, I was in kidney failure. And I was immediately put the last place I wanted to be, the hospital. Um, I was shortly there diagnosed with, uh, you know, like I said, kidney failure. And I was told that medication and, and diet and things of that nature probably wouldn't help me. Um, I needed a kidney transplant. That was uh, the one way and the only way I was going to be able to save my, save my own life. So I went and, you know, went through all the procedures and the testing to make sure, you know, I was, I was healthy enough to, to receive uh, a transplant and you know, make sure the rest of my body was going to going to work with with the potential new organ. And through that, I got a second gut punch was they discovered I uh, had portal hypertension in my liver. And now I needed two organs, not one. So that was kind of uh, uh, an uh oh moment. And I realized that you know, I could probably find a kidney, but now I needed a liver too. And I knew the only way I was going to survive was to be proactive and find my own donors. And I just started asking everybody I know, hey, can I have part of your liver? Can I have your spare kidney? And, you know, when you start a conversation like that, you have their attention and uh, then you can explain why versus the other way around of telling your story and then going, oh, so by the way, I, I need a kidney and a liver. You, you start there. At least that worked for me and had lots and lots of people, you know, offered to take the first step, which is a simple blood test to find out if their blood type and my type uh, match. Most of the time, that's not the case and, and people move on and, you know, but I was lucky. My brother had the same blood type as I did. And uh, my younger brother also got tested. He did not. So, you know, lucky him. He doesn't have to go through surgery. And uh, my friend Kelly, who happened to be the wife of my son's high school wrestling team. He would, he's the coach and she's his wife. And I knew them from wrestling and all, all the years with my son. And she initially went in to see if she could be a kidney donor. And they approached her about possibly being a liver donor. And she didn't even know that she could donate a portion of her liver. And uh, 
So they talked her through the procedure and she was a match. And so I was diagnosed in February of 2021 of needing a double organ transplant. And a year later in February of 2022, uh, February 23rd, I, uh, I was wheeled into the operating room alongside Kelly and my brother was patiently waiting and he got wheeled in in the afternoon and I got Kelly's liver in the morning and my brother's liver in the afternoon or my brother's kidney in the afternoon. Kelly's liver in the morning, my brother's kidney in the afternoon. Wow, what a story and what a crazy journey. So the need for two organs happened in the possibly worst time, as they say, obviously COVID and so much restriction. And you found not only way, but will and desire uh, to keep at it and to take destiny in your own hands to make that happen. First of all, I don't know, I'm like, I commend you for your strength, for your resilience and for your sense of clarity uh, where you need to be and what you need to do to make I'm that just happen. stubborn. Yeah, I'm just stubborn. I mean, present me with a problem and uh, I'm gonna do everything in my power to solve it. Um, you know, never more motivated than when it's your own life you're trying to save. Um, you know, and the, the thing that has, has been the most humbling is the willingness of others to help, you know, my brother, I love him. He's, he's best friends to me. I mean, my whole family were, were, were very, very close. Our younger brother, we, anything ever happened to our younger brother, you know, brothers being brothers, we'd, we'd handle it. Um, my brother didn't have to do this, you know, nobody does. But what I found was, you know, people are looking for that, that moment, that thing that they can do in life to, to live, you know, and, and give and, and have a legacy. Um, and their willingness to literally share a part of themselves to to save me um yeah. you know that's that's why i claim to be the luckiest guy alive it's got nothing to do with you know the success i had as an athlete you know the the travel and the experience that i had as as a kid you know very lucky to have had that but to have two people and their families and their support group and the and the community give of themselves that way that is why i'm the luckiest guy alive because without them i wouldn't be alive um you know i think i think organ donation especially living organ donation is it's it's the greatest gift you can give um and you get to be around to see it you know i get to spend time with my brother I get to spend time with Kelly, you know, we don't have any women in the Weber family. We, we haven't made, there hasn't been a female member of the Weber family since before World War II. You know, I'm the middle of three boys. I have a son. My older brother has a son. My younger brother, you know, his fiance has a wonderful little boy. I mean, we can't even, we can't even recruit a girl to join our family. Um, <laughs> but, but we got Kelly now. Um, and Kelly, I mean, Kelly fits right in, but you know, we're, we're a pretty fun, love and rough housing, you know, you know, pick on each other kind of, kind of crew and, you know, who better to have joined that family than, you know, uh, a strong, beautiful woman, Marine, um, you know, she, she's just tough as nails and, uh, and we, we love her to death and, uh, and she fits right in. What a powerful story, Randy. And when I listen to you, um, obviously takes a, takes a special person, takes a special leader, takes a special character for someone also to not only build such a beautiful relationship, but for to have a people corral behind you and wanted to help because we see so many people in need, but also 
uh, what kind of person that person is, right? And, and obviously when it's need, we don't, we shouldn't be uh, seeking to justify who do we give, who do we help, who we support, but also definitely makes huge difference when we know uh, that someone is truly an exceptional human. And as a result, it's so easy. It's easy to give, it's easy to support, it's easy to learn and discover. Um, but also I'm sure your Olympic spirits and everything you experience as athletes, beside being stubborn, um, I'm sure contributed significantly with that mindset. So for everybody watching and listening, um, how did you cope, first of all, with this news and beside taking things in your own hands? What was the way for you? How did you control like all this? Because it's so easy to creep into negativity too, right? Oh my God, uh, how many days? How fast this needs to happen? How I should do this? Right. Sometimes we orchestrate all these different things and sometimes we play in our own head with so much. How did you stay again, very grounded and also able to handle things which appears in so many ways flawlessly? So as an athlete, especially in an individual sport, um, you know, you you are in control. You control how how much you train, how hard you work, how well you prepare, your diet, you know, your your environment is is yours to control as an athlete. Um, this was the exact opposite. I had no control. Um, the body that I had relied on and used and, and exploited was failing me. And uh, that was hard to understand. Um, you know, I think whether you're an athlete or not, when when your body fails you, that's that's really you know hard to take. And believe it or not, I I learned for the first time in my life to let go and and accept the fact that I didn't have control of the situation. I could control me and making sure I stayed healthy and and could could have the surgery i could control how many people i asked and and how i spread the word of of my need and i could i could put myself out there which for a former athlete wasn't that hard you know but for some people that's the biggest the biggest hurdle is is oh my god how do i tell the world i need help um so those were the only things that I could control, how I took care of my body and, and how many people I went and asked. I couldn't control who who was a match. I couldn't control whether or not they were willing to, to be a donor. I couldn't control the time frame. Um, I, you know, we were able to plan for my surgery because I had living donors, but you know, when I found out in November, I was like, hey, let's go. And I, I didn't have my surgery until February of 2022. Um, so I had to learn how to let go and, and only focus on the things I could control and let other professionals, doctors, the medical staff, the hospital, you know, the, the care team for, for Kelly and Joel, I had to let them do their job and just wait. Um mm. So I, I learned I learned patience very late in life. And I think for someone who is so self-driven and self-motivated and you know want to be in control of their environment, whether it's as an athlete or as a, as a business owner, which I was, um, you know, a, a parent, you know to, to, to finally go, okay, I can only control me and I'm going to rely on others to to help me um and and i think i think that was a good experience for me to have i'm not really thrilled about the vehicle that delivered that experience to me but but you know i i think that was was the biggest lesson for me and once i was you know in recovery and i'd had the transplants and and things weren't going well Again, I had to remember that I could only control me and and take the medication and do whatever the doctors told me to do and just and let it let it work through 
And at one point I was like, why did I do this? You know, I, I was existing before I could still go to work every day. You know, I, I wasn't in great shape, but you know, there was a period after the surgery when things weren't going well, where I was like, man, this, this is way, way more difficult than I thought it would be. And again, I had to remind myself that I'm not in control of this situation. I just have to do what I'm told, you know, and, and, and let, let my body heal and then it will serve me. And, mm-hmm. you know, I'm, I'm not yet two years away from, from my transplants and I feel better than I have in, in 10, 15 years. Um, so, you know, learning the lesson of, of giving up control for, for me was the most difficult, but the most valuable. Such a powerful, again, sharing lessons in life that we a lot of times, and I love what you said, it's not about control, but learning patience, surrender to situation and let it go and do only things you have control over to increase odds, right? For success and then to have that positive mindset. And I know February will be your second year since our tra- uh, transplant occurred. I'm curious how you feeling for everybody watching and listening. I mean, uh, and, and how how is your brother? How is Kelly? Those amazing, beautiful human beings that stepped in and, and made a, such a tremendous impact and difference. So my brother, my, my kidney donor, um, he's a school teacher. And I think he was out for about 10 days um he did have to battle gout for a couple of days um two reasons one he probably shouldn't have had a double bacon cheeseburger with fries and everything the night before surgery because it (laughs) it 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 was a shock for his system to be down a down a filter you know that's what your kidney is he was down a filter immediately and uh it it caused him to get gout but a couple days of medication no problem. Um, yeah, he was back to work. He he has to be on a very mild dose of blood pressure medication um, because he only has one kidney. Um, but he's great. I mean, coaches football is around youth. You know, he's he's a wonderful teacher. You know, just you know, he's he's one of those guys you just want in your life. Um, and he he's fine. I mean, I see him two, three times a week if I can. And, uh, and he's great, you know, and he loves to tell the story. And he's got this ridiculous tattoo now that says vacancy on his side, which was my thank you <laughs> gift for uh, for his, his life-saving uh, gift to me. He shows it off to all the kids. It's a great conversation starter. He's, he's very much an advocate for living organ donation. Um, the fact that he's spreading that word to, to young people in the classroom, you know, just telling his story, um, I think is wonderful. Kelly, uh, she's doing great. Uh, she was down for about, you know, 90 to 100 days was her recovery time. Um, it's pretty painful to have your 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 innards, you know, sliced and, and spread and, you know, 60% of your liver removed. Um, but the liver is the one organ that will regenerate. So in about, you know, three months, she had a full-sized liver again. Uh, the piece they put in me, you know, 90, 100 days later was a full-sized, fully functioning kidney, uh, liver. Um, so she was back to work, you know, I would say, you know, within three, four months. And yeah, she's great. Uh, neither of them have to take any anti-rejection medication. You know, Kelly d- doesn't have to take any medication at all. Um you know, it, I would say, if I'm bold enough to speak for them, that their lives haven't changed in any way, but for the better because of, of their donation. Um, me. So before surgery, they, they come in and they give you this list of, of complications. And this could happen, but the chances are, you know, 2%. This could happen, but the chances are half a percent. And, you know, you go through it and you're like, yeah, this is a risky thing. You know, things could go wrong. It's it's a, a risk I'm willing to accept, but we're going to hope that that list, you know, is, is small or non-existent. 
that became more of a, of a checklist for me. You know, if it was on the list of complications, I was fortunate enough to go through that. Um, I had to have a drain in my liver because my bile ducts collapsed and, and weren't, weren't working. So I had to have a tube, you know, in my side going through my liver and into my intestines for about nine months after surgery. Um, I have these huge scars, you know, one goes from, from the middle of my chest all the way in the, around the right side of my rib cage. And then they actually transplant your, your kidney goes into your abdomen down kind of in your pelvis area. So I have a, another incision about eight inches long, you know, right below my waistline. Um, recovery was rough. My kidney didn't fire up very well, collapsed bile ducts. So, you know, lots of, lots of concern, lots of trips to and from the hospital. Um, but once my organs started to work and once we had a solution to the bile duct collapse and we went in and, and they surgically fixed that for me, my trajectory has only been on, on an upward path. Um, and, it, and it happened pretty quickly, like, you know, surgery in February, most of the summer until, you know, spring and summer until about July in the hospital and then, you know, October, November, December, and it just, it keeps going up. I mean, I have little hiccups here and there, um, but it's, I, I'm in life 2.0. Um, you know, I've been, I've literally been rebuilt from the inside. Um, I just, I, I feel young. I don't look young, but I feel young. My body works. I can be active, you know, I, I work too much, according to my wife, um, but it just, I'm able to do so much more because people were willing to, to give of themselves and donate their organs and save my life. That is, again, amazing. I'm glad that, um, all those little hiccups or things that were in the beginning difficult and challenging post-surgery are now being uh, taken care of and that you are having quality of life back as well opportunity to be obviously supporting others and uh, active member in community but also for everybody watching and listening if you don't mind just sharing, it's an, as a live organ donor, what would be the message for people that are waiting for organ donation? And then also for the ones that are on the fence, like wanted to possibly consider being one, uh, what would you suggest and recommend for both sides of the coin that you've been actually uh, seeing and experiencing so, so much in, in the recent few years? So for someone... Yeah. So for someone who's in my position, you, you need a life-saving transplant. You, 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 you're in that moment of panic. Um, you just have to ask, you just have to put out the word that you have the need. Um, you will be shocked at the reaction you get. Um, People want to help. If you don't know how, there are organizations that can help you. Um, I work here locally in Colorado with a, with a nonprofit called the American Transplant Foundation. They help donors and those who need uh, a transplant find each other. They offer counseling services. You know, they they have a list of, of people who are willing to be donors. They know how to help you. You know, promote your need for for a transplant. Um, with social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, you know, all these other platforms that that are out there, you can spread the word so quickly, and you know, you've, you've just, you've got to save your own life. If you are waiting to receive an organ from, from your place on the list, 
you're you're in for a long hard wait um you you just got to start asking um no one's going to get mad at you no one's going to say how the heck did this happen you know you just have to you have to let the world know you need help and sometimes that is the hardest thing to do is to is to put yourself out there and say i need help nobody likes to say i need help um but but no one no one is going to reach out with anything other than compassion and their want to help so if you need a transplant get a hold of get a hold of everyone you know and ask them to take a blood test. I mean, it's 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 truly that simple to start. Tell them that they don't have to worry about the medical costs because your insurance, as as the person in need of the transplant, your insurance pays for everything any donor would need. My insurance covered every every cost for Joel and Kelly, all of the testing, the surgery itself, their care afterwards access to the resources that, that the transplant center has. Um, you know, you, you, you will find people who are willing to help you. Um, now, on the other side, people who want to be a donor. It is the, it is the lasting legacy that you can, you can leave. And it is an awesome thing. Um, being a donor is, I mean, I, I get a little choked up because, you know, those, those who are willing to give literally save lives. I mean, it's, it's, it's that simple. Um, it's a blood test. And if you're a match, then, you know, it's some other testing you will you will get the million dollar workup you will learn everything about your body you ever wanted to know and you don't have to pay for it um and you know if you wish you have the opportunity to to save someone's life you don't necessarily have to have someone in mind you can sign up uh you know to to be on the list of people who are willing and you know they record your name your contact info your blood type and you know where you live and they may say, you know, out of the blue someday, you know, hey, Isabella, we see that you're on, on the list of people who are willing to be a donor. We have someone who's in need. Would you be willing to, you know, go through the, the testing to find out if you're a match for them? And if you're already on that list of people who have said, I'm willing to be a donor, you know, that's that's the phone call you're waiting for. That is your opportunity to to change and save the life of somebody else. And, and, you know, instantly have a legacy of, of honor and, and giving and love to leave behind. And you get to be around to enjoy it. I mean, that, that to me is the coolest thing. You know, deceased organ donation is the ultimate gift that, that people's families can, can leave behind for their loved one who tragically you know is not going to live um and and those people are they're angels they're they're truly amazing you know people and and their families um but i think the hardest part is they don't get to uh they don't get to experience the the love and the joy in the same way that living organ donors do Mm, such a powerful um, distinction, but also such a powerful message here. Randy, um, thank you for sharing your story and telling us um, how your life journey got you to, to today, where you also are now advocate for others. Like we know some colleagues and friends that are going through a similar situation and how you're trying to support from both sides, the ones who are considering uh, being living donors and the ones that are in need to provide the hope. And thank you for shedding some light specifically again, as we are going into holiday season and giving and also supporting in one another. I just want to say your legacy is being carved already through Olympics and so much that you already did prior. But with everything that you're doing right now, 
I just want to ask you in this chapter, uh, how would you like to be remembered known for in the closing so that everybody can really hear what is now a motivation and drive for your legacy at this chapter in your life? I want to have my legacy be one of a person who through great fortune um, was able to to make a difference and the calling I have and and the difference that I want to make is I don't want anyone who needs an organ transplant to die waiting that is that is unacceptable to me and the solution is right in front of us living organ donation the ability to save the life of someone else, be it a friend, a family member, or a complete stranger, is the answer. I mean, I, I've teamed up with, with some folks, you know, the American Transplant Foundation. Um, through my journey, I've, I've hooked up with a gentleman named Mark McIntosh. He needs a kidney transplant. And he has an organization called Drive for Five. And the goal of that organization is initially to find 5,000 living organ donors um, and, and get those people through and, and signed up and, and ready to, to save the life of someone they know. But Mark and I, 5,000 is, 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 you know, that's, that's the low water. We want this this message and and get everyone to know that you can be a living organ donor. Um, you know, hundreds of thousands of people are on the list. Tens of thousands of people die on the list waiting. And it, it, when there's a solution right in front of us, it, it is unacceptable to me that, that people die. Um, it just, it's totally unnecessary. The resources are there, you know, the, the medical expertise and, and the relative ease of, of organ donation. Um, it just, it, I can't stand it, to be honest. I, I, I really, really want my legacy to be, you know, Randy was part of a team and, you know, they made sure to put an end to people waiting for an organ. Thank you for listening to Legacy Leader Show. If you enjoyed the content and had a positive experience, then please leave us a positive rating. In addition, leave us positive review whenever you are listening on whatever platform there might be. Make sure your friends and family also know about the benefit and value that we provide and what we have to offer. Cheers.